The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. I feel like if I'm trying to, like, update what year I'm in, yeah, given you, that, like, the MSTP numbering system just, like, you're gonna gives up after six. Yeah, yeah you're... There's no point. Yeah. It's I'm, It's just... It says MSTP student, and that's it, and we move on with our lives. Yeah. If you want to know what I'm doing, you can email me, and, like, <laughs> we can talk about it, but, like... I've just... I've been here a while. Don't worry about it. Move on. Yeah. When half the forms make you click TBD as a graduation date, you give up, like, yeah. on numbering <laughs> where you're at in the progression of your degree. <laughs> Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast. It's the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. Uh, with me today in the SCP studio is comforting and is, is as healing as a heartfelt apology. Welcome, N1, N1, N1 <laughs> Jeff Goddard. Hello. Are her insights shimmer brighter than a beacon of hope? It's M1 Linda Peng. Hello. Like a lighthouse guiding us back to our home port. It's M1 Faith Prohaska. Hi. Shining bright. I mean, if you thought that was all short coats, well, I'm indignant. How very dare you? Because our guest today is Dr. Wendy Dean. She's an expert in medical research and innovation. Her work is now dedicated to systemic healthcare improvements. Her expertise spans women's leadership, healthcare investment strategy, and the ethics of medical innovation. And her book, out this past April is called If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. Dr. Dean, welcome to the shortcut. Thank you. It's great to be here. Was all that was all that correct about you? I didn't <laughs> Yes, sir. I prefer to ask after I introduce people. <laughs> Although it seems we could fix that in wow. editing. <laughs> no, it sounds it was fine. Okay, yeah. good. Jeff, you suggested that Wendy join us today because you wanted to talk about this concept of moral injury. Yeah. So if you prefer, I guess, Wendy. So I it kind of a circuitous route. The book was suggested to me by a faculty member here, and I did find it riveting. I probably could have been studying instead of reading it, but I genuinely enjoyed it. And are you making her responsible for not passing this exam? <laughs> I passed this exam. But we're good. So okay. Phew. I read the book and then I've been listening to your podcast as well. And so I guess I wanted to, if you could maybe define for us what moral injury is and we can start there. Sure. The way we use moral injury is that it's knowing what your patient needs, but being unable to get it because of the constraints outside of your control. But it's really rooted in the definitions of moral injury that were developed for use with combat veterans. So Jonathan Che is a psychiatrist who, back in the 90s, um, was caring for Vietnam veterans who weren't getting better with the known PTSD treatments that we knew to work. And so he started saying, wait a minute, I wonder if this diagnosis is right. And he came up with this concept of moral injury. This uh, He was seeing what he thought of as a soul wound. And he said it was betrayal by a legitimate authority in a high-stakes situation. 
And it was later expanded by Brett Litz and Bill Nash, who are also working with combat veterans. And they said it was perpetrating, failing to prevent or bearing witness to acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. And I sort of read those deeply held moral beliefs and expectations to be the oaths that we took entering into a profession to put our patients first. And and I appreciate that understanding that this isn't something that's exclusive to medicine. And in fact, your last episode of your podcast, Moral Matters, was the one with the uh, talking about the police officers and moral injury, right? But it is certainly something that applies to medicine with the systemic constraints that we have. And one of the things that I really loved, so my classmates were perhaps a little bit more prudent and focused on their studies instead of reading this book. But I called out here. So, so to kind of give them a little bit, the stories in the book of clinicians doing everything they could for their patients and then just running against this wall of the system, not helping them get the job done that they knew they could do, that they knew that the patient deserved. It was it's kind of heartbreaking. And I'm not a very cynical person. Like I, I genuinely believe that the world is going to get better and that we are going to make medicine better. But also it's now it's a little intimidating now as a lowly M1 imagining these are the systems that I will be going into, right? So I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on on that at this point in your journey. I think if you are the forever optimist, I am the forever cynic, at least. We balance each other. Yeah, at least in the podcast episodes that we're on together, if you're taking the optimistic <laughs> take, I'll be the cynic. I would like you to try someday, Jeff, taking the pessimistic take and seeing if... I can be faith, sunshine and rainbows if you can flips. be the anyway, dark we'll rain cloud. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt there. Just a thought. But I mean, I think my understanding of medical systems was that people like are going to be harmed by them, at least coming into medicine. But I always saw physicians as a group working against that. And I think the realism of what I've learned through you know as i reflect on my whole one year of medical school and the great life lessons i've like gained from that is that they can't always and how do you grapple with the fact that like you so desperately want to but you also want to keep your job so you can help other people and sometimes helping more patients means not going and doing the things that you know you should be doing for this patient and how do you I feel like we're pretty on the same side in all of our ethical discussions, especially in like the biomedical ethics thread that we have here at Carver. It's it's so frustrating to talk through those situations as a student, and I can't imagine what it's like to actually be in that situation as a physician, at least not yet. I so desperately want to be optimistic, but I've seen the way systems disadvantage people, and yeah. I would rather be a cynic and pleasantly surprised than an optimist and continually disappointed yeah so 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 wendy one of the things that i i feel like your book you might have actually specifically said this but the book is more written for a general audience not just to to fellow clinicians kind of answering what i think is a really good question which is why doesn't my doctor care right at least that's how i read it is like you know i'm going into the doctor's office and they don't i'm just you know another statistic really you know i'm just another person filling up a seat here and 
a very good argument that you make is that's not the case. At least that's not the case initially when people are going into this field. This is one of the more altruistic fields that somebody could go into. Obviously, we are trying and the system kind of beats us down a little bit. How, how did we get here? <laughs> that's a big question. But, pages of yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so we got here by truly believing that and this is where I take the optim- optimistic stance, that we got here by believing that medicine needed to be different, it needed to be progressive, it needed, we needed to try these new ways of bringing, bringing health systems together, you know, the consolidation, the vertical integration. We were told by business that would help. It would cut down costs. It would help us manage this out-of-control spending that we're seeing in healthcare. You know, in fact it's not doing that. We're not seeing good evidence that the consolidation or the vertical integration is either improving outcomes or reducing costs. But we've had a hard time slowing that train and saying, okay, hang on, that experiment didn't work. So let's think again about where we should head with this. But I think, yeah, so those that's the real challenge in how to like how do physicians fit in this where our voice has gotten smaller and smaller. And I think where we need to start looking, excuse me, is can we start coming together and speaking as one voice that's a bit louder? Right. From my perspective as a not doctor, I don't know if Mm -hmm. I mentioned that from my perspective, it seems like, you know, historically, physicians sort of have let these conversations happen almost to them right in a lot of ways because they were busy doing the medicine stuff and as sometimes happened when you let people make decisions for it you get sort of run over by the train and the, the decision train and and now you're sort of forced to you know reckon with the decisions that have been that have been made for you um, which puts you in the sort of position of you know, if, if you don't believe the current paradigm that puts you in a position of being a revolutionary, which is kind of an uncomfortable situation to be in if you're a working physician, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the one of the things that physicians, you know, this whole idea of does your doctor care, do they not care? They care deeply, and they're trying to work within the constraints that they're given. I think the administrators who have made those decisions and sometimes put those constraints in place aren't necessarily they don't necessarily have bad intentions sure they actually did it believing that it was going to be the right thing and yet because they're not clinicians they don't always see what the unintended consequences of those decisions might be they don't understand the nuances of clinical medicine and physicians and other clinicians are busy enough now that it's hard for them to break away and have meaningful input into those decisions. So we're getting further and further apart from each other. Yeah, I think you make a good point about it's not any group in particular's fault. I just think that the two missions of healthcare, i.e. fix patients and make money, are somewhat misaligned. Um, and that creates conflict. Yeah, the way we think about it a lot of times is that there's, on the one hand, you have physicians who are trying to heal their patients and keep their patients alive. 
And then the administrators, their job is to keep the organization alive. Yeah. And you really can't, you can't have healthcare without one or the other. Right. Right. So there's a, ideally there's a balance struck. Um, And it seems like currently that balance is a little not balanced there. Yeah. Maybe we should give an example of something just for the completely uninitiated, the example of something where, you know, what the physician wants to do can't be done within the system that they work or is more difficult to do within the system that they work and thus could cause moral injury or repeat. And I guess it's appropriate to say repeated exposure to those kinds of situations can lead to moral injury. Is there a good example from your book that maybe you can provide? The best example, I think there are a lot of good examples, but the easiest example was Rita Gallardo. She was an oncologist, and she said the healthcare systems would restrict the places where she could refer her patients to only those doctors within the healthcare system. And she had a patient who had an unusual cancer. She knew that her mentor from her fellowship was only an hour away. And that mentor was the sort of the country's expert in this rare cancer. So she wanted to refer that patient an hour down the road. And her healthcare system gave her a hard time about that because they wanted to keep the revenue stream within their healthcare system. And when that happened more than once, she realized, okay, the healthcare system does not have the same goals that I have. It, it's time for me to reconsider what whether I can align my values with the values in my healthcare system. She left one, went to another one, had the same experience, and eventually left and went to work in a direct primary care practice where she has a direct relationship with her patients. They pay a monthly subscription fee, and they get her care and her undivided attention. Yeah, it's interesting that this seems to me to be often the solution for this problem is to get out but there, of course but there's going to be that balance right? right because there are some fields of medicine that is possible maybe even ideal and there are others like you can't have a prime you can't have like a private practice emergency department or, right. or rather you probably wouldn't you could, be very successful but, right <laughs> and so the, it, there is that balance of you right. need institutional structure to be able to provide the resources necessary and then there are others where because that's not necessary you are more free to step back and i wanted to point out that in case somebody's listening that maybe took the uh, the euphemism too lightly giving her a hard time can range anything from like formal reprimand to stagnant career opportunities because they're not they're just not offered to actual it can result all the way up to firing right so like this isn't like hey please do better about this and we're going to tease you about it. it it it's pretty serious right anyway so I, I had a thought this morning, and I hope this is relevant. Just um, one. Just Your one. Daily thought. I had a test to think about, so I only had time for one thought. My my wife sent me a Tumblr post, and those are always messy. But it was, so forgive me, I did a lot of philosophizing as an undergrad. and Where we know. Yeah, I'm I'm that guy. And you've stopped um, that now. Yeah, that's yeah, no longer have, a thing. Yeah, Our, yeah I, for everyone listening, he said as an abundantly clear, that as an undergrad is a mischaracterization that's fair you, you have done do and will continue to do a lot of philosophy i do exist to think about the big questions that said there was a post about the trolley problem and for those of you that don't know so the 
proverbial trolley is there's a trolley out of control and you're standing at the switch and either you can let it keep going down this track where it'll hit five people or you can throw the switch and it will only hit one person on the other track right and it's it's an opportunity for us to flesh out ideas on utilitarianism and what we value what's going to be possible for my own moral existence to be comfortable with who i am and somebody made a very long rant about how everything before this situation would have failed right in this hypothetical situation it's because an engineer didn't provide the proper braking system or there wasn't an inspection of the system or there wasn't redundancies and that's the reason why the trolley problem exists it's not it's somebody else's fault and one i always take offense when somebody takes an analogy too far and they stretch it and it, it always kind of falls apart but I, the reason why i accepted this one was because that's fair. There are often whole systems behind us that may or maybe quote unquote somebody's fault. I don't really like the word fault or blame that much, but let's say somebody else caused this to happen. That doesn't change the fact that I'm standing at the switch, right? At the end of the day, I'm still the one that has responsibility for the decision in front of me. And we as clinicians are going to be the ones that are, you know, standing here trying to make the best decisions for our patients. Hopefully not in a situation quite this dire, right? But at the same time, just because a system has fallen apart, and it might be somebody else's fault doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility and so i worry about the danger that comes when you're facing this kind of system of apathy which i've certainly seen and not a many but and some clinicians where they're just like it just seems kind of futile to fight it so i'm just gonna like i'm gonna put in my eight to ten hours a day and go home instead of trying to worry about these systems like and like you said wendy of trying to come together and create voices that are large enough to change the system i don't know that's kind of a rambling thought but so I think we are at, we're in the midst of that right now, where the f physicians are at the switch yeah. and more and more of the system dysfunction is being rolled down to us yeah. at the switch. And that's what people are saying. I can't do this anymore. And there was a great quote from an article that Ed Yong wrote back in November of 2021. And he said, healthcare workers aren't quitting because they can't handle their jobs. They're quitting because they aren't, they can't handle being unable to do their jobs. And I, so I think what we're saying is we need to start pushing that responsibility back up the hill where it belongs yeah. rather than allowing it to roll down to us at yeah. the switch. So we need to start implementing things that, or, have some sort of checks and balances in place that acknowledge that there are those systems issues that need to be addressed in order for us to be able to do our job our jobs in a sustainable way i really like the point that you made about needing to push it kind of back up into administration because as people going into healthcare, and especially as people wanting to become doctors and physicians we all have this sense of like, well, I, I want to take action. I want to know all of the things. I want to help those people. If we wanted to be more removed, we might have chosen a different career that wasn't as involved in like directly impacting people's lives. And so to say, I am a person, I think, whether or not we believe it on a day-to-day -day basis, we all would consider ourselves relatively intelligent people who want to take action depends on the day but yeah, yeah like it's a after i've taken a test and passed a course i'm so smart but like <laughs> 24 hours ago i knew nothing but what about 24 yeah. hours from now 24 hours from now returning to the trough hoping, of, I yeah know. i will know some things 
I will also be celebrating. So I'm correct. How much I know will give or take less things. But we all are doers and consider ourselves as people who can impact that change. So to say I am a smart person, I am capable of making that change and of helping people. But that's not my job. It's yours is a hard it's a hard thing to do to say this is not my job. This is your job. You need to fix this system so that I can do my job when we have so much of like a I can do it I'm a capable person so I think it's not us or them I think it's all of us together yeah there is no them it's all us yeah I think it's hard as a person though to say like oh yeah yeah yeah. there's there you have this whole like evolution behind you of like being in your little tribe and and, like existing as one one group but we are learning socially if not you know evolutionarily speaking that turns out we're all in this that we can't afford to have a them anymore we can't get things done uh, on any real scale with their if there's a them that can only be us right now that that point is made i guess i just had a question of like what does that mean though like when it sometimes it really feels like there is a them yeah <laughs> and how do you reconcile that sometimes it feels like there's someone i mean i haven't practiced any medicine yet but i've <laughs> we know um, <laughs> i i have heard stories and been part of discussions where it really feels like the system is telling somebody that they have to choose between you know for instance getting a life-saving surgery and being and not having any money at all ever <laughs> like yeah. you know things that that seem really like no whatever happens to this patient there is significant harm. So, I, yeah, I, I, that's not really a well-formed question, but. So uh, I absolutely appreciate what you're saying with that. What I would say is a lot of times as physicians, because we don't understand all of the background, all of the history, all of how medicine as a business works, we see it as this monolithic, immovable thing a concretized bureaucracy that we can't that we can't influence and a black but box would, where we have no idea what's going on inside yeah and when you don't know what's when you don't understand what's going on it becomes very anxiety producing cuz i don't know what's happening here i can't if i don't understand it it's hard for me to control it or influence it and what i think is really critical especially for people at your stage of the game is to start informing yourself about what's behind that curtain, what's in that black box. Because we created this system, and it may not be us personally who made these decisions that created a system that looks like this, but we as a society, we as a whole, have created this system. The bad news in it is that we created it. The good news in it is that if we made those decisions, we can make other ones. And we can renovate the system. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, the nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Panacea Financial is designed for medical students and residents as it was founded by two doctors that were financially frustrated during their training. Thousands of doctors have used their PRN personal loan to avoid credit cards and use a better way to cover expenses for residency, relocation, or other life expenses. Panacea's PRN personal loan does not require a cosigner, 
has no minimum credit score requirement and has interest rates starting at half of a typical credit card. They also offer a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. So go to panaceafinancial.com slash matchday to learn more about Panacea and get other helpful information on Match Day, residency transition, and Panacea Financial is a division of Premise, member FDIC. Thanks for the support, Panacea. Let's get back to the podcast. How prevalent do you do you think moral injury is among healthcare professionals? I mean, it- well, we don't have a great measure for it yet, so it's really it's hard to know for sure. But when I have given talks. I will say to people, okay, so who thinks you're burned out? And half to three quarters of the hands go up. When I explain the difference at the end of the talk, when I've explained the difference between burnout and moral injury, I ask again, who thinks that, who now thinks that burnout is the accurate description of what you're experiencing versus moral injury? And about 85% of the hands go up and say it's moral injury. So I think if we've got half of our healthcare system, half of our healthcare workers who are suffering some level of distress, I would say that probably 45% of them, 40 to 45% also have some level of moral injury. But that's, you know, literal back of the envelope calculation. Um, We haven't measured it yet. Yeah. And it's obviously, it's a difficult thing to measure, right? But I think that it's enough that we are aware of it, right? And so it's something that needs to be addressed. I guess my problem is there are certain hats I wish I could take off. I can't take off this philosophy hat. So life specializes. It's what we do, right? We have these wonderful hepatic cells that do their job. So that was our unit that we just finished, by the way. And then, you know, we have neurons and we have all of these different, like life, when it is possible, life will specialize and we do the same thing, right? I am but a hepatic cell. Yes. (laughs) We are part of these larger organisms in a very real sense. And I know that like people are uncomfortable with from a legal standpoint, but from a very real sense, like organizations like a hospital or even a hospital system, those are organisms, right? Like each member has specialized in such a way so that this entity can survive, can go into the future doing what its shared mission is, which hopefully is making life better for the patients. The problem is when certain parts aren't working as well as we want them to. And now I have to take on a role that I wasn't hoping to take on. I personally am excited to to go into more of, I want to do policy. That's the future that I want to be a part of and to work in trying to improve systems. But I can also totally understand that I have classmates that just want to be a pediatric oncologist, for example, or they just want to be able to provide this specific type of medicine and they want to work with their patients. They don't want to deal with it. And it's such a hard balance to try to figure out how much should they have to. And at this point, it's, well, we all kind of have to, right? Yeah. What choice do you have, really? Yeah. I don't think that's a choice. And there are difficult parts of every job and parts of every job that we don't want to do. I haven't, Um, for the record, I haven't noticed that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Dealing with guests. Just in case anybody, just in case anybody at a dean level is listening. I'm cool. Dave loves his job. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and so I, I think if you, if you think that going into medicine right now is possible without understanding the landscape of what you're walking into, I think that's a it's a very it's a very hard it's going to be a very hard way to practice. Now, 
Does it mean that you have to get deep into the weeds of what policy, how to make policy, and the intricacies of reimbursement? No, probably not. But you will have to understand the challenges that your patients are facing and the challenges that the healthcare systems as they exist now put in their way and put in your way. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the reasons we have these conversations on the show is because our our audience is plenty of pre-meds in the audience. And I think it's best to know what you're getting into and how your life, what your life might look like someday as a physician. If it, if I, well, I would never, I would never want us to discourage people from getting into medicine, but you know, if you look at these things and go, I don't know if this is what I want out of my life and you don't end up applying to med school, that's a valid decision. Yeah. You know, it's not always easy to do the work that you guys are going to be able, are going to be doing. Yeah. I think I mean, that it's really useful to go into this with your eyes wide open. Like this is what we're going to be dealing with. But I, I, there has to be enough, uh, this is a bit of a segue, there has to be enough hope that it can improve. Otherwise, you're not going to do anything. Something that I find myself saying a lot is, if you believe that literally nothing can improve, y- you will do nothing and literally nothing will improve. Right. And I that's something that I'm trying to hopefully combat in, in medicine is this sense of helplessness or inevitability. And I think one of the things that that I really enjoyed about the book that kind of helped me with that is understanding, like, this is a complex system. And when you don't simplify it so much, if you guys know who, you guys know who John Green is, he wrote these yes, books. He's kind yes, of we know who John Green um, is. He, I love the Green Brothers. Something that he says quite a bit is that despair is an easy emotion because it's simple, because you can simplify everything down to this, everything is bad. But life is more complex than that, and hope requires a lot more complexity. And I think that's kind of what I'm hoping to get into seeing more of is that this is a complex system but as we learn to accept the complexity i think we can be it doesn't necessarily get easier but it's in a sense it's more possible to to confront it and say what the problems are you know what the problems and 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 uh, you know then you can start seeing what can be done about those problems yeah but without that acknowledgement without the acknowledging the problems there's nothing that you can do and i think that's the point that you were making dave with just to comfort the listeners who maybe are like hearing this and are like i don't want any part of this dave just told me i shouldn't go into medicine it's not that it's not a if you don't want to do this you don't deserve to be a doctor you're not capable of being a doctor yes this is the reality of what being in healthcare is like right now if you don't want to be part of it that's a totally understandable decision you get to make that it's not if you don't want to be super involved in policy, if you're not super knowledgeable about it, and if you moral injury isn't the thing you want to change, that healthcare isn't the right field for you. It's just that this is an intrinsic part of the system we have right now. And if that's not something you want to deal with, you don't have to. You can do a different job. You can still help people. Like You can still enact change. Just that's a decision you get to make with the information i would say that it's as ubiquitous and healthcare as the krebs cycle is in medical education like it's going to come up yeah you're going to see it at some oh, point don't say the krebs cycle <laughs> it's such a I it's, yeah i think it's maybe a little bit more yeah than the krebs cycle <laughs> I, I, mean, I feel like it's certainly more useful to be aware of it right so yeah i think so day-to-day life yeah. far more applicable than the krebs cycle okay yeah yeah and i feel like you know i Writing a book is an exercise in hope because you can't spend 18, 18 months, seven days a week, 12 hours a day doing something that you don't think has the capacity to change. 
But what I was trying to do was to lay out in a very accessible way what the blueprint of our current healthcare system looks like. How did we build it the way we built it, you know, quote unquote, built it so that those of you who are coming behind will have an introduction to how we got here and can start to see the ways that we might change it. Yeah. That's what a really good mentor does. Yeah. Is there, so, so now that we've gotten to this stage of the conversation where we're talking about things like hope and all that kind of stuff, do you see movement in a positive direction or are we still at the point where we're just characterizing the problem? So I think we have, in the last six to eight months, we have started to move. And I think what's what has pushed people to move is the crisis of healthcare workers. I also think healthcare workers have been saying more and more, this isn't just about burnout. I, I knew that I was signing up for long hours. I knew that I was signing up to see impossibly hard things. That's the demand resource mismatch of burnout does not really characterize well this sense that I have that I'm betraying my oath. That's more about moral injury. So let's start talking about that too, because we need to reduce the administrative burden of healthcare for healthcare workers. But we also need to recognize that the decisions that are being made don't always accord and don't always align with the values that I brought into healthcare and think that are and think are still valid while working here. So what changes then would you like to see in the next decade then if we're thinking about that sort of time scale? There are so many, (laughs) but where it starts is it starts with healthcare leadership saying we have a problem and we didn't recognize what we were doing. I spoke with an executive a couple of weeks ago who said, I read your book. I see how we're repl- how we are betraying our clinicians. And I am working to change that. It is important to me because my job is about taking care of the people who take care of our patients. And so that is that's what I want to see across the board in healthcare leadership is starting to feel responsible for taking care of the people who take care of patients. And see, that's one of the things that I like genuinely, sorry, this is just a small tangent, but what I genuinely enjoyed about your book is I've read a lot of books where the author comes across as indignant, which is understandable, but then they go kind of go on the attack. And when you're trying to convince somebody that maybe we should do something different, putting them on the defense is maybe an ineffective approach, right? And I felt like that was not the case with your book that there was that hope that hey this is what's happening these are the problems i'm not blaming anybody i'm just saying we we can do better and i think that's one of the things that made it so for me like possible to be a positive influence sorry thank you for that yeah that was what i was aiming for it's hard when you see (laughs) you know when you're sort of steeping in all of these challenges every day to to still have that but i believe i know a lot of i know a lot of executives who are really trying to do the right thing yeah they don't but in all honesty they don't always they're not clinicians so they don't see they don't see it what i would also like to see is them is the executives and the clinicians being able to talk to each other 
to be respectful of each other, to see each other on a similar level. And I would like to see healthcare organizations standing up and pushing back themselves when policies, legislation, regulation are are likely to put their clinicians at risk of more moral injury, right? That is, we are profoundly missing that piece of courageous organizations standing up and pushing back. And I think that kind of goes to the whole idea, like an organization is an organism that is trying to survive, right? And so they know that they have a certain amount of wiggle room where they can comfortably push things, but they're worried about pushing too hard and the blowback that could come from it. But at the same time, like, you're not going to be able to thrive if you don't stake your ground. I, I read a book a few years ago that talked about a meeting between insurance companies and health executives and a couple of other like policymakers and these kinds of things, right? And the author said, you know, for the first 45 minutes, it was everybody was pointing fingers that, you know, it's pharma's fault. And then pharma says, well, no, it's not. It's somebody else's fault. And they just kind of going around the room until somebody stood up who was a physician, an MD, MBA, a physician executive, and I stood up and said, uh, this is all of our fault. And then he laid out, this is how my part of the pie is is to blame. And the, these are my responsibilities. And I think that we need to have that conversation. And then they were able to have several hours of actually productive conversation about how we could all take responsibility for it. And I think that's what I hope to see is pe- people being able to say, and that's why it's so important for, for me to what you wrote is, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying it's all of our responsibility, right? It doesn't matter whose fault it is. The system kind of grew organically because, you know, of decisions made along the way that it's it would be hard to say it's that guy's fault. It's really all of our responsibility to move forward. And I think that's a lot healthier and a lot easier to, to stomach than, I don't know, it's Gerald's fault. Yeah, I mean, it's very much about, it, it's sort of that, the stance that we take in psychiatry where, what happened to you as a child was not your fault. But now that you're an adult, you have a responsibility to manage your condition, your experience. And it's sort of, it's the same thing in healthcare. You know, we as clinicians, as physicians in this generation, don't have responsibility for what happened in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s. But we do have a responsibility to acknowledge what the challenges are in this system and be willing to move forward and change them so that it's better for the people who are coming behind us. And we also owe it to them to succession plan and make sure that the folks coming behind us are well prepared for what they're walking into and for the decisions that they'll have to make. So if you're a clinician, maybe you're just out of medical school, okay? Or let's push it a little further down the road. Maybe you're an attending. Okay. What specific things do you think that an attending could do to start addressing their situation, this situation beyond, you know, learning about the history and the antecedents of the problem? What would be the, what would be the steps that you would want to see people take? Pick the thing that you find most interesting as a challenge. Pick one thing and learn whatever you can about that one thing when you've learned that, which hopefully you've done along the way because we've done a better job of preparing medical students and residents for what they'll get into. Yeah. And then start getting active 
If there's a committee that you can join, get on the committee. Is it going to be more hours? Absolutely. Is it going to be more work? Yes, it will. Talk to your colleagues, get their data, get their stories. Also get comfortable with being uncomfortable because nothing changes if we stay comfortable. In order to make change, you need data and stories. So get really good at storytelling and ask a lot of people for data. That, well, that's, that's storytelling. Our, big, our yeah. big struggle. I love data. I forget that people are people and they love stories. Like I, like, it's, this is why we have a writing in humanities program. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons we have this. Uh, I just feel like I should because, be able to give somebody a like a bar graph and they should just change their life. Yeah, like, like that, oh, okay, that's it's, it's right, right there. there. It's pretty. It's blue. But no. <laughs> so in papers, not only do we have a results section, which is what you love, but we also have this thing called a discussion where you talk yeah. about. The but the discussion of those results and what they mean and what but we the discussion do about comes it. last. This is true. The stories have to Sometimes come up first. The stories have to come up first. And an yeah. acknowledgement section, but yeah. it's all part of what's necessary. Generally. Well, this is why when you this I, is why when you listen to to you know well produced news stories, right? It always starts with a discussion of the of it always starts with a story, a discussion of the stakes. You know what it is where why we're talking about this. And then you go into the details of the story. You got to give something. You got to give people something to hang their hats on. And as you say, Wendy, you know, to do that, you have to immerse yourself in that situation. You have to understand that situation really well. You have to start collecting those stories. I love that you mentioned stories. Obviously, I'm very excited to hear you say so, that. I have to ask you, Jeff. What sticks with you from the book? Give me one thing. I've been thinking about it this whole conversation. I'm trying not to cry. The, and I forget names, but the clinician that ended up taking his own life because of the, and I would say there wasn't a villain in the story. It wasn't that somebody was trying to get to that point. Nobody wanted that to be what happened, but it is what happened because the system put such constraints on it and built it into itself that was almost an inevitability and that's not the system that i want to have that's not the system that i want any of my colleagues or myself to be working in that's the story that sticks with me and it, it, you're right it is the story it wasn't the numbers it was the story right right and that's you know the hardest thing that i had to learn and i thought i was a decent writer coming into writing a book i got disabused of that very quickly the i had a developmental editor who would say to me where's the story here I don't see the story. I don't understand. I don't, there's no story. And so learning where the stories are is also a real skill. I, so I recently at the behest of one of our other guests, I wrote an article about my medical education process and I was working on trying to get that published. So I wrote a first draft and it, uh, and then I wrote a second draft and Dave was very kind enough to read it and he gave me like a thousand things for the first draft and like everything is wrong and the second one he's like well actually this one's not bad and I swear the only thing I changed was I started it with the story like I made it personal and Dave's like wow it's actually like tolerable now (laughs) (laughs) because I don't think I used the word tolerable (laughs) somebody was gonna care it meant something to them and and they could see themselves in that story yeah yeah that's the other important yeah that's the other important part of the storytelling process is allowing people to see themselves in the position of the person you're describing. Yeah. And And I think that's one of our concerns with, and this is a more ephemeral idea of like medical communication generally. I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that we see a lot of that we're hesitant about is that when people use stories to push misinformation or bad agendas, right? And we see this emotional appeal that is being used to harm. And so, at least for me, I think, oh, well, I'm just going to get back to the numbers. Like, I'm going to show them the data and they're going to see that emotional appeal was what not what they should have been doing instead of meeting the people where they deserve to be met, which is we're storytelling people. We're, that's what we do as a species. We tell stories. Well, um, the trick is to use a hybrid approach then, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It, it, because the fact that they are using a tool in a way that is harming people doesn't mean that the tool is wrong. The tool is effective. They're proving that it is effective. It's just, I get scared of the tool because I see that it's being used for harm and I just, I let it go and I need to be better about that. It's Did harm. you have enough data in the book? I felt like I got the data that I needed to for the case yeah. to be strong. Right. Yeah. You can do both. Yeah. I'm right there with you with seeing those stories online of people saying that this like one in a million or far less than one in a million what's the like a google or whatever it is that's like the 10 to like a hundredth or something like these so rare of occasions are happening and so they're saying this medicine is bad this vaccine is bad because this crazy thing happened and i went through all of this like medical trauma and that's those stories are so important because they point out the issues in the systems and the protocols and the procedures that we have. But it's also so important to contextualize that with your story is so important. Your story is not happening to the hundreds of thousands of people that are liking and sharing this post on Facebook. So if they go to their doctor and say, I don't want this vaccine because somebody had a bad reaction it's going to this is going to be a dr rundy he's going to love this because it's entirely number needed to treat and number needed to harm but it's important to contextualize those but if you just i mean i'm an mstp student i love data and numbers but if you give me a table full of numbers and statistics like why do i care so you need those stories to balance it out but you can also look at those misinformation those posts and that Mm -hmm. person being so earnest about their challenge and everybody sharing it as that is also an indicator of where trust in our systems is. Yeah. yeah. And so being curious about why did we get here? How did we get here? Mm-hmm. What, how have we eroded that trust in our system to the point that people are sharing these stories and believing these stories without the data to back them up? Yeah. And, so and I think that that's one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of years is what it means to to build trust through these stories and communities that have done it really well i'm thinking maybe finland or south korea or even rwanda who have had phenomenal success with public health measures over the last few years and then countries that have done a lot uh, much more poorly the one of the countries in the world that has like the lowest vaccine vaccine rates to vaccine availability is France, for example, right? And understandably, they've been having some issues with public trust. And so this is how it bled into public health and the problems they're having because the stories that are being propagated are tearing apart that trust. I think really what I'm getting at goes back to this idea that we can't, we have to get rid of the us versus them. Like, I understand that there's a lot of indignation. There's understandable anger at injustices in the system. But at the end of the day, we have to be able to see people as allies trying to make the system better, not enemies to tear down and destroy, because those are the stories that are going to t- that are going to erode the trust that we need to 
to help our patients, to help everybody. I don't know. Just agreed. Well, maybe on that note, we should we should close out the show. Wendy, how can people find out more about you and your work? The easiest way is to go to our website, fixmoralinjury.org. There's also the podcast, Moral Matters, and there's the book, If I Betray These Words. Fantastic. If my recommendation means anything, a phenomenal podcast and a phenomenal book. And Thank it, you. And it does. It means everything. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's our show. Jeff, thanks for producing today's episode. Happy to do it. And uh, Linda, Faith, thank you also for being on the show today. Happy to be here. And what kind of betrayal would it be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us part of your week? If you're new and you like what you heard today, follow us wherever fine podcasts are available. You know where they are. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, plenty of places. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government, an ongoing support from the Writing Humanities Program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying, don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, Shortcoats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.